Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter number 8 this morning. Let me say thank you to our visitors for being here. I, I say this often, but uh, you don't know this because you're a visitor, so I'm going to say it to you. Uh, I know you probably had to drive past five or six churches before you pulled into our parking lot, and that's not lost on us here. We're thankful that you're here with us today. Trust that God will bless you and your faithfulness in being in the house of God. Hosea chapter number 8. The book of Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. So if you know where the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament, you find it and uh, go to the very last page of it and turn right. and You'll find the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea, probably one of the saddest of all of the books of the Word of God. But there is a message uh, there for us today as we study in chapter number 8. Hosea chapter number 8. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 7. The Word of God says, Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Or of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also. The workmen made it, therefore it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here, Lord. We know it's by your grace that we're in this, this place today. And we just pray we'd not take that for granted. Help us as we've come here. Lord, much effort has gone into us being assembled here today. And what a shame it'd be to come this far, to come all the way in the house of God, but because our heart is not in a right condition to be unable to meet with you. So, Lord, I pray we would have our hearts open, obedient unto your word, Lord, in a spirit of self-examination. And may, Lord, the deep work, the difficult work, the work that only the Holy Spirit can do, may it be done in us today as we submit ourselves unto Thee. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, the book of Hosea is the first uh, in, in the canon of Scripture of the minor prophets. And while it is not necessarily the oldest, it is certainly one of the older of the minor prophets. Hosea is prophesying to a wayward and backslidden kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. Often Israel in their disobedience to God would be called Ephraim. That was the name that was used when they were backslidden on God. You'll remember after Solomon died that his son Rehoboam ascended the throne. Rehoboam, because of some bad advice and, and lack of wisdom on his part, uh, he sought to make the burden of his rule heavy upon the people of Israel. And in doing so, he caused a rift in the nation. And the northern ten tribes broke away from the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they formed their own kingdom under the rule of a man by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a wicked man. He was a man that in the counsels of God was ordained for this moment, but he was not a righteous man. He was a wicked man, a corrupt man. And so he peels off those northern ten tribes, and they form what's called during this time in, in the nation of Israel's history, the kingdom of Israel. One of the other things that Jeroboam did when he ascends the throne, he's worried that the people of God in Israel may go back in their allegiance to uh, Rehoboam and the southern tribe if they uh, continue to worship at Jerusalem. 
So he devises a plan whereby he can steal their devotion. He uh, builds uh, two uh, pagan temples in the northern portion, in the northern kingdom of Israel, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And then he has two gods made for the uh, Israelites to worship. They are both golden calves. Uh, How many of you have heard this before? There ain't no new thing under the sun, Solomon said, right? The devil ain't got no new tricks. He just dresses them up a little bit. Uh, They took that same idolatry uh, that was a part of Israel's first foray into idolatry. I'm talking about they had just come out of Egypt. Their, their breath still stunk of the garlic and the fishes. Somebody say amen. It's just out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, under disobedience by Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses, the high priest, they crafted a golden calf and they said to Israel, these be the gods that brought thee out of Egypt. Well, you know the story of how Moses came down uh, and uh, God's displeasure was made known to the children of Israel. They took that cow and ground it up into dust and put it in the water, made the people drink it. Well, now these long years later, Jeroboam is trying to find some way to lure the people of Israel away from God. He goes back to that same old broken idolatry that they had had many, many years before. He carves these golden calves and he puts one in Bethel and he puts one in Dan. And he says to the people of God, he said, it is too much for thee to go up to Jerusalem. Can I just have a little aside today? I was gonna, I had another message I was gonna preach. And now I decided I wasn't going to preach it. So now let me just preach it real quick, all right? And then we'll get back to our main message. Uh, Let me tell you something. This whole spirit of casual Christianity is what's destroying the church today. Jeroboam said, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Now, he didn't care what was convenient for them. He was worried he was going to lose their allegiance. Can I tell you something? Listen, that crowd that wants to make Christianity easy in its exercise, they ain't interested in helping you. They're selling something. That's why they're doing that. Uh, Let me just say, hey, listen, it was the easiest thing in the world to get born again. But to live like a Christian, to have a life that looks like Jesus Christ, there ain't nothing easy about that. It's a hard way. It's a hard path. The Lord Jesus made that abundantly clear whenever people would come to Him for discipleship that it was a hard road. Whoever said Christianity was supposed to be easy? Whoever said it was supposed to be convenient? Whoever said it was supposed to be comfortable? I think if we study our Bible right, I knew this was going to make you mad. Don't bow up on me now. Uh, Christianity was never supposed to fit into your schedule. Your schedule was supposed to bend to Bible Christianity. It was never supposed to fit uh, to your tastes and to your palates. It was always that God was going to transform and change you to fit the mold and model of who Jesus Christ is. And this casual Christianity, that wants to take Christianity and and, and fix it like Plato, mold it around the outside of the life of our own authority and self-determination. There ain't a lick of that that's Bible Christianity. The spirit of that, and listen, that crowd that wants to tell you that, that you can just you can live any old way that you want, you can have Christianity on your terms, they ain't just got a, a, a compassionate heart for you. They're trying to sell you something. Just like Jeroboam was to the children of Israel. He didn't care about them. He just didn't want to lose their loyalty. So he sets up these two pagan temples. And thus idolatry takes root once again in the nation of Israel. As the long years pass and idolatry begins to bear its fruit in the nation, God calls a man by the name of Hosea uh, to take a wife of whoredoms, to have a broken family and a broken heart and a broken home, to communicate the broken heart of God to the children of Israel over their sins. 
Uh, the book of Hosea is probably one of the most intimate and passionate, spiritually speaking, of the books of the Bible. For it portrays to us how God's heart breaks when we let things in our life take His place and when we begin to live in sin. When you come to chapter number 8, there is a figurative phrase that is used in verse number 1. Remember that in Israel's history at this time, the Assyrian Empire is dominant on the world stage. And they are getting ready by the, by the counsel and foreknowledge of God. They're getting ready to march down from the north right through the land of Israel and destroy the kingdom of Israel. And so God's prophet is commanded in verse number 1 to set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come, speaking of the enemy, speaking of the Assyrians, he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Let me notice first this morning the proclamation of the prophet. And it, it began with this, a, a, a message that treble, a trouble was descending. In other words, Hosea, you need to tell the people that that rosy disposition and outlook they have on the future is a false hope. In fact, there is an enemy that is marching even at this very moment. He is described as coming as an eagle against the house of the Lord. Uh, very likely this is referring to Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor, who would be the very one that would exterminate the northern ten tribes. When the phrase house of the Lord is used here, it's not talking about the temple, but it's being used figuratively of Israel as a house, as the people of God or as the household of God. And the message was things ain't going to get better, Israel. As long as you live in sin, things are only going to get worse. Can I say when we hang on to our sin, we hang on to sorrow. Trouble will always come. There was trouble that was descending. And then he mentions the trespasses that were deserving. He says, because... They have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Whenever we invite sin into our life, we invite sorrow into our life. Whenever we invite disobedience into our life, we invite suffering into our life. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you cannot have it both ways. You cannot live a life of rebellion and a life of happiness if you're a child of God. You're going to have to make a choice. Now, listen, I, and I don't, I don't think you are, but don't get mad at me. It's not my message. It's not my truth. This is a truth of life. You might as well get mad at the meteorologist for saying it's going to rain. Uh, you might as well get mad at the scientist uh, for describing uh, the components on the, bio, on the molecular table. Uh, it is just a truth of life that when we have sin, it will always bring sorrow. And the people would then protest unto God. And they would say this in verse number 2. We have the protest from the people. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Now here is a preacher of olden days, Hosea, giving a message similar to what we're saying today, that when we let sin in our life, when we let idolatry into our life, it always brings suffering. And the people of Israel answered with a very similar cry to what is heard today. They said, My God, we know Thee. Notice first off, they claimed to have kneeled before God. They called Him My God. Can I say this? These are not irreligious people. In fact, the problem is not they were irreligious. The problem is they were mal-religious. The problem is not, these are not rank pagans that have no concept of who God is. These are the people of God. This is Israel. These are those that all the way up through their history were a part of that group to whom the oracles of God, the truth of God had been committed. These are not people that do not know who God is. These are not people that have never read a Bible. Can I say we're living in a time of great accountability today. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have access to half a dozen Bibles. 
You're sitting surrounded by them today. You reach far enough in that pew, you'll find one. Uh, you go to a hotel, you'll find one. Uh, you go just about anywhere. Some of y'all spent time in jail. Some of you say, amen, I know they had them in there. Amen. They're everywhere. We are a people of great accountability. And don't think that that access doesn't come with accountability. They said, hey, we know God. We have kneeled before Him. And they claim to be religious people. They claim to be a worshiping people. And in a sense, they were a worshiping people. But notice number two, they claim not only to have kneeled to Him, they claim to have known Him. They said, we know Thee. I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus warned in Matthew chapter number 7 about that day when men stand before God. He said this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Then he says this, Many will say to me, not a few, not some, not a sizable portion, many, he says, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, just like they said in Israel of old, my God, you're, you're my Lord, you're my God, we worship you, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name have done many wonderful works? Now stop and think about this for a moment. Here's a people that have a religion and they have lived their entire life believing their religion was true religion. But on that day, listen to what the Lord's going to say to them. In verse 23, He says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Like Israel of old, we know thee. Here was the question, did God know them? They said, we have a knowledge of God. We are aware of who He is. We have much knowledge. We've studied Him. Our entire daily life is centered around knowing who He is. But God says, the problem is, What you know is not who I am. There are a great many in the world around us today that are religious people. Or the word of the day is spiritual. You hear that all the time. People will say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. What that means is, well, I don't go to church, but I guess I would if I didn't have anything better going on. I'm, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, people will say. But my question is not, are you religious? My question is not, are you spiritual? My question is, is your religion, is your spirituality true today? They said, we know thee, we know thee. But what was God's answer to them? Down in verse number 6, and we could begin at verse 5 just to frame it. He speaks of their pagan idol. He says, thy calf, O Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Verse 5, he says, thy calf, O Samaria. And he begins to describe their fake God, their false religion. He goes on in verse 6 to say this, the workman made it, therefore it is not God. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought. It is not God. I want to ask you this question. If something is not God, What does that make it? It makes it an idol. If we are worshiping something as God that is not God, then we are an idolater. Now, our idolatry may not look like the idolatry of that day did. I'd be very surprised if anyone had a golden calf in your house. Won't be long. You'll be able to find gold, but you won't be able to find beef. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, I'd be very surprised if you had a golden calf in your house. That's not what idolatry looks like in most places in the world today, particularly here in the West. But I find that even though we may not be uh, worshiping idols or tokens or, or, or statues or figurines of that sort, idolatry is alive and well in Western Christianity. They have a form of religion. They have a form of godliness, but they've denied the power thereof. They want enough of God to appear as religious to those that are on the outside. 
but there's no substance to their relationship with God on the inside. That's what a form is, right? That's what Paul taught, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. If you've ever worked with concrete, one of the first things you have to do is build a form. And on a two-dimensional level, that form looks as though it is the, the substance. It looks as though it is the artifact, the actual Thing. But when you look three-dimensionally, what do you find? There's nothing on the inside if the concrete ain't been poured. It's just hollow on the inside. They want everyone looking at them two-dimensionally to think they are a religious person, a spiritual person, but there's no substance on the inside. They have the trappings of religion, but in fact there are other things in their life that are more important to them than God, that they are worshiping above God. They said, my God, we know thee. What was God's answer? God's answer was, you know something, but you don't know me. You have a God, but it is not me. What does idolatry look like in a person's life? I want you to notice a few thoughts with me this morning. I want you to carefully consider your own life. What's most valuable to you? What's most important to you? What can you not live without? What is the thing that you will guard carefully and defend no matter what the cost? That very likely is the idol that you have set up in your life. If that thing is not God in your relationship to Him, then very likely there's an idol in your life. What does that look like? Look at verse number 3 with me. The Bible says this, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. He describes first off their rejection of God. Idolatry in every person's life begins when they make a conscious decision to place something above God, to pursue something at the expense of their relationship with God. Now very often we may not realize the severe cost that it is uh, taking and, and demanding in our life. But if you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, He will make plain to you when we are prioritizing anything above the Lord. Israel had made this decision. They knew what was right. They knew what was true. And they made the decision to follow that which was false above that which was true. We could go back and time won't permit, but we could examine what caused that in their history. Let me just make this other statement about casual Christianity. The idolatry began when they began to believe this lie that it is too much for them to worship the Lord. The moment that you decide that your time is so valuable that it's too much, that your attention is so valuable that it's too much, that your treasures are so valuable that it's too much to give those things for the Lord and to the Lord, you have set up an idol in your life. It began as they bought into this lie of casual Christianity. And when they did, notice what they spurned. They've cast off the thing that is good. In fact, I would say this. The only thing that was good about them was the very thing that they cast away. Say, preacher, that's a severe statement. Well, that was the Lord's statement. Uh, it said that uh, Ephraim or Israel was given to idols, let her alone. In other words, there's nothing redeemable about her. Uh, said of Israel that her wound is incurable. Looked at the northern ten tribes and said there is nothing that is of value left there anymore. Why was that? Because they had cast off the only thing that was good about them, which was the worship of the God of heaven. I'll let you in on something, and this is true of Israel of old, but listen, it's true of us today. It was not the blood that ran through an Israelite's veins that made him valuable in the eyes of God, but rather it was the faith that had ran through the heart of Abraham, and it was the truth of the promises of God that had been bestowed unto him. There wasn't anything biologically superior or genetically superior about them, and when they cast off the God of Israel, they cast off the good that was in Israel. 
The same way in your life and mine. And listen, I'm thankful that my salvation is not dependent upon my resolve or my commitment or my devotion. Uh, like Israel, that is connected to the very promises of God. I'm saved because He saved me. I'll stay saved because He won't unsave me. Amen? Uh, but if there's anything in my life that is good, anything of value, anything of meaning, it is not that which originates in me. It's not that which, like their idol, was from Israel itself. It's not that which is in me, but it is that which is in Him. Cast off that which was good. And listen, when we turn our devotion away from the Lord, we immediately forfeit any hope of any blessings and any help and any peace in life. They had spurned that which was good. But then notice what they had summoned. It says, because of that, the enemy shall pursue him. Listen, we're, we're not, we, we like to pretend like we're some kind of blind little lamb sometimes that just don't know any better. You know, and I know that if you live in sin, you are laying your life open to the predations of the devil. You know that. Uh, you know that if you allow sin in your life, you're giving, as Paul said, occasion to the flesh and giving opportunity to the devil. And that's what Israel did. Israel, when they turned from God, they laid themselves open and vulnerable to the enemy. And it wasn't long before punishment came. We shouldn't be surprised in our life if we let anything take the place of God in our heart and in our devotion and in our dedication. We shouldn't be surprised if God brings chastening into our life, displeasure into our life to try to get our attention. We knew what we were getting into. We've got enough Bible learning here in East Tennessee in an independent Baptist church. We're not blind. We're not ignorant. We know we can't live in sin and not expect there to be consequences. I see their rejection, but then I see he describes their rebellion. Verse 4, he says this, They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Idolatry is at its very heart rebellion. In fact, we'll find that in the tribulation period, the rebellion, the man of sin, will express the very epitome of rebellion when he goes into the temple of God, we've been teaching on this in Apollo's course, and demands that he be worshipped as God. He's going to set himself up as the God and as the King of all humanity. Idolatry and rebellion always go hand in hand. Why? Because we're saying to ourselves, I don't want God to have the authority in my life. I want to have the authority in my life. How did that manifest in Israel? Well, I would say, number one, they acted without considering God. He said they have set up kings, but not by me. The throne of Israel was always something that was under the jurisdiction of God Himself. Uh, the first time that Israel wanted a king, they chose a king for themselves, and it was an abject failure. Uh, Saul, though he started out promising, and though he had every legitimate opportunity from God Himself to do the right thing, to make the right choices, still his reign ended in shame and disgrace. Israel was not helped until they accepted the king that God gave them when He gave them David over the throne of Israel. And an unbroken example and standard is displayed all through Scripture. When they picked a king, they always picked them wrong. When God picked a king, He always picked them right. But now what have they decided? They've decided that without any consideration of what God desires, what He wants, or what He expects, they're going to make their decisions on their own. This is the very spirit of idolatry, for it dethrones God from His rightful place in our life. And when you and I make decisions, and we don't care what God thinks, and we don't care what God's opinion is, we've got our course set, the die is cast, we're crossing the Rubicon, we've made this decision, doesn't matter who it hair lips, we are participating in a form of idolatry. 
we've decided that we are the God of our life and not the God of the Bible. They made this decision without considering God, but then they acted. Notice, this is, this is shameful. They acted without even consulting God. What does he say in verse number 4? They have made princes, and he says, and I knew it not. Isn't that an interesting thing for God to say? If you just have a basic introductory course into studying the Bible and, and what, what people call theology, you learn at the very outset that we have an omniscient God. Omni meaning all, and shint being the, the idea of, of knowledge, you know, like prescient and, and things like that. Omniscient knows all things. In other words, we have an omniscient God. He knows everything. So how could He say they have put up Princes, they've made princes, and I knew it not. Now, God knew about it, but what He was saying, and, and you've probably said something like this, if there's been something that somebody's not shared with you that you felt it was your right, your business to know, you might have said something like, well, I didn't know anything about it. And you might have known, but you're trying to communicate that you were not consulted about the matter. They acted, and they never even prayed about it. They're setting up kings, and when it talks about princes, it's talking about the future of the nation of Israel. This is the man that's going to assume the throne after the king dies. They literally set the course for the nation and never even prayed about it. I, I'm on. You with me today? Ah, listen, I knew this wasn't going to be fun for either of us. Just knuckle down. We'll get through it. <laughs> hey, listen. Uh, the, you know a lot of the reason we don't pray about things is we don't really care what God's opinion is about it. I'm not saying we're mad at God. I'm saying it never even occurs. To, I'm, boy, take it easy on that preacher up there, Holy Spirit. Quit preaching at him. I'm just telling you the reason we don't pray about it, we really don't care what God's opinion is. I'm not saying we're angry at God, but it's just it doesn't even occur to us to ask God about those things. Why? Because it wouldn't matter anyway. We've already made our decision, and so we don't even consult with him. You know, idolatry, because idolatry is always, any sort of idolatry is, is a, a, a deifying or a worshiping of a false god. It always negates the idea of prayer. Because why would we pray if we know our God's not a real God? Only Bible Christianity contains the concept of real prayer. So all the weird Eastern religions have to substitute some kind of strange psychological uh, mess that's, that's not conscious, uh, that's not coherent for prayer. Why? They don't have real prayer because they don't have a real God. <laughs> no sense in talking to Him. He ain't going to answer anyway. Only Bible Christianity has the idea of intelligent, coherent, conscious prayer that is meaningful and change-bringing. Why? Because we have a real God. And oftentimes when we have idols in our life, the first thing that suffers is prayer. Why talk to God about it? He's just going to fuss at you. Right? He's just going to tell you you're living in sin. Why ask God about it? You already know what His answer is. And so what happened? They began to make decisions in their life. They didn't pray about it because they didn't care what God thought about it. Because they weren't worshiping God anyway. They were worshiping self. He describes their rebellion. Then He describes their religion. Verse number 4. The very end, He says, Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. Their religion was what? Well, number one, it was a false religion. It was not true. They said it was real. But then again, every adherent to a religion believes their religion is real. That's why we have to have something external of ourselves whereby we can test the authenticity of what we believe. That's why we have a Bible. We can read it and see, is it true? 
Does it hold true? Is it obvious in, in our experiences, the experiences of others? Can we see the power of it? Can we see the validity of it? But in this false religion, it had to all be self-contained. You see this with cults all the time. Uh, they will forbid their people from reading anything outside of the realm of what they can control. By the way, the Roman Catholics do that very thing. Tell people, don't read your Bible, you won't understand it. They ain't afraid you ain't going to understand it. They're afraid you are going to understand it. That's what they're terrified of. And so they have to create this insular, this isolated, this bubble to contain things in so that they can maintain their grip and control. Well, Israel had done the same thing. They had created their own God. What was God's assessment of that? Well, in verse number 6, He says this, From Israel was it also. And I found this, well, the first step to setting up an idol is deifying self. From Israel was it also. You know the first thing they should have said? It can't be a God because it's from us. And I find that most idolatry in Western Christianity today, whatever it manifests in, whatever it expresses in, it may be temporal things, maybe relationships, maybe our time, maybe hobbies, maybe whatever that we put above the Lord. But at its very heartbeat, what it really is is saying, what I want out of my life is more important than what God wants out of my life. From Israel. It's all about Israel. And then he says this, the workmen made it. They constructed it. They devised it. God says, therefore, it is not God. It was a false religion that they had. They believed they had the real thing. So much so that when God said, I'm going to destroy you because of your idolatry, they said this, what idolatry? Wonder how many Christians, when the Holy Ghost knocks on your heart and says you better deal with this idolatry, you say, what idolatry? What idolatry? Now, they were playing dumb. But that's what we do too. We say, now this thing's not really gotten out of hand. It's not really a problem. And yet if you look at our life, you can tell something has become more important to us than the Lord. It was a false religion. But then notice this, it was a fruitless religion. Look at verse 5. The Lord begins, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but He's almost mocking them. He says, Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain innocency. Now, anybody that was astute in the land of Israel could see that the Assyrians were marching their way. In fact, Jonah himself could see that. That's why Jonah did not want to go and preach that revival to the people of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. He knew Israel was living in sin. He knew the Assyrians were the most likely instrument of God's judgment upon them. So it was obvious to everyone that their time was short. And God almost mocking them. He says, this that calf you've been writing? It's thrown you. It's not willing to carry you anymore. He's saying it ain't working for you. What went wrong? Well, notice three things. One, it hadn't saved them. He said, I have cast thee off. The, the, the problem is you picked a cow to ride, but there's an eagle sweeping down on you. You've picked a false god, but there's a real enemy that's trying to destroy you. Now, man, let me just say this. We better quit playing games because the devil ain't playing games. I'm serious. We better quit playing games with our family because the devil's not playing games with your family. We better quit playing games with our marriage because the devil, he ain't playing games with your marriage. We better quit playing games with our church because the devil, he ain't playing games. He's using real bullets. He's, he's, I'm talking about he ain't firing blanks. He's using real bullets. We better, we better get serious about this thing. Because pretty soon we get overrun. It hadn't saved them. Notice number two, he says this, Mine anger is kindled against them. It not only had it not saved them, it hadn't satisfied God. 
God says, why do you worship an idol? Well, you worship it because you believe it is owed your allegiance and you believe there is something about your life that has to be rectified. You have to deal with the trespass, wrath, and holiness of God. He says, here's the problem. It ain't satisfying me. Why are we worshiping what we're worshiping? This really gets to the heart of the problem, doesn't it? When it gets to be more about projecting an image to other people than it is about about pleasing God, we have set a course for idolatry in our life. Why were they doing this? It didn't please God. They had no reason to believe it would please God. There wasn't an ounce of Scripture anywhere that they could point to where anyone had ever worshipped a golden calf and God was pleased with it. So why were they doing this? Well, it wasn't about pleasing God. It was about pleasing them. But then notice what he says. How long will it be ere they attain to innocence? Innocency. Attain means to strive for. What he's saying is this. The enemy's sweeping down on you. Your false God is not pleasing me. It's not pleasing you. But still you persist in it. Still you refuse to repent. How long is it going to be till you'll change your ways and live right? I'd say this. It hadn't saved them. It hadn't satisfied Him. But it also didn't sanctify them. The problem was it couldn't change them. Because nothing but the true God of the Bible can change a person. Please listen carefully. I mean, I, listen, I'm preaching to save people this morning, but in case a lost person has come in and sat down amongst us, and I hope you have, I hope you feel welcome, I hope they treat you so good that nobody would ever tell a difference and not knowing that you're lost. Can I say to you this morning, hey, listen, at the end of the day, all these false gods won't change you. Can't no Pope change who and what you are. Can't no good works change who and what you are. Can't no baptism change who and what you are. Your favorite TV preacher can't change who and what you are. Your attempts to try to project being moral, even though there's no substance on the end, it can't change who you are. There's only one thing that can wash us white as snow. Hey, listen, the, le- the leper can't change his spots. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, that we can't change anything. But listen, the God of glory, He can change us from the inside out. Hey, the problem was it couldn't change their life. Uh, They, like that woman with the issue of blood, uh, had gone just like she had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor that couldn't cure. The average person today goes to charlatan after charlatan after charlatan, idol after idol after idol, like Paul marching down Mars Hill looking at all the idols they've got to all these false gods. And he sees this one to Zeus, and he sees this one to Jupiter, and he sees this one to Mercurius, and finally he comes down. He sees an idol there that says, to the unknown God, Now he says, listen people, this is the God I've come to preach. You've got all these gods you've been trying and ain't none of them cleansed you. Ain't none of them made you whole. Ain't none of them gave you peace. But here's the God that you don't know. He's the God that created the heavens and the earth. He's the God that stepped out onto nothing and flung everything into existence. He's the God that holds everything together by His immutability. He's the God that meted out the universe in the span of His hands and measured out the waters in the lines of His hands. And that's the God that loved you enough to die for you and to save you. He says, that's the God I'm, I'm preaching to you. The one you don't know. Hey, if you're lost today, you said, preacher, what God can save me? Let me preach to you about the one you don't know. But the one that loves you, that died for you. He's the God of the Bible. He gave His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And He can change your life. He describes their religion. And then finally, look down at verse 7 and I'm done. He describes their reaping. He says this, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. What would be the, the result of their life of idolatry? Well, he lists two things. One, 
He said it would produce in them a life without peace. You've sown the wind, he says, but you'll reap the whirlwind. Now, this is an agricultural metaphor. Anytime you sow, you always expect to get more back than you put in. That's why you do it. And he says, you have thought that you could depart from God and play with sin and allow just a little bit of disobedience in your life and all you'd get out of it would be a little bit of displeasure. He said, you know that's not how it works. Whatever you put in the ground comes up a hundredfold. Hey, that you know, that's a great danger of sin. Is we, we are just prideful enough to think we've got it under control. We think what we put in the ground is what we're going to get out. And I, listen, I see people all the time in life whose lives are wrecked And they always say the same thing. I don't know how it got this way. They'll say, I don't know how it got so out of hand. You can go down, you can talk to those uh, that are strung out on drugs, you can talk to those uh, that shake from their drunkenness, you can talk to those uh, whose bodies are being ravaged uh, by sins of immorality, and you ask them if they planned on getting in that shape. And every one of them will say, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought it would go this far. What are they saying? Well, I I just I sowed a little bit of wind. But there they are in the whirlwind of their life. I would say, he says, there's no peace. You think you'll get peace, but there won't bring peace. He said, your life's going to be a constant tornado. You ever met people whose life was a constant tornado? I mean, it just, everything just tore all to pieces at all times. No peace, no joy, no contentment whatsoever. He said, the problem with your false idol, he said, not only is that it don't please me, it don't even please you. It doesn't even make you happy. It doesn't even satisfy you. He said it would be a life with no peace. And then look at the end of verse 7. He says, it hath no salt. Now he's talking about wheat growing up. He says first, it's not even going to produce a stalk. It's not even going to grow up high enough to have a stalk. And then somebody will say, well, but I've been worshiping my false idol and I've got this and I've got that. Figuratively saying, I have stalk in what I plant. He said, well, okay, if you get a stalk, then the bud will yield no meal. It's not going to produce anything of profit from it. And there'd be some that would say, well, you don't understand. I, I planted and I got not only spoke, but I got bud and it produced a meal. And he said, okay, well, if it produces meal, he says, all that's going to happen is the strangers are going to swallow it up. You know, the problem, you know why we're so susceptible to the devil's lies? He lets just enough people grow up stalks and buds to point at, to say there is profit in following your own course. That's what Hollywood is. That's what the modern sports complex is. Uh, that's, uh, he allows just enough people, uh, uh, just enough success, so that he can point and say, it pays to serve the world. But you see, God sees the end of that thing. Even everything they've got, let me tell you something, they don't get to keep it. Everything they've got. I don't say that with any delight in my heart. It's tragic. It's sad. But the truth is, even what they've got, they don't get to keep we were talking about, me and my wife were, about the chaos of our world and how swift, how hastening everything. I mean, don't it feel like the wheels are getting ready to come off? We are talking about why that is. I'll tell you why I think it is. I think that the people that 70, 80 years ago began a Marxist takeover of our country, I think they did it for ideological purposes. I think their perspective was we're going to play the long game. We'll get a hold of academics. We'll get a hold of media. We'll get a hold of finance. We'll get a hold of these things. And we're just going to bide our time. And after several generations, it won't take long. By the way, the Soviet Union said they were going to do this. They mocked the Americans and said, back in the 50s, they said that within 50 years, America will be a communist nation. 
And they were willing to play the long game. They were true believers. Then they got replaced with a whole class of politicians that are craven, whose gods are their bellies. And they're not bought into the ideology. They're just in it for self-preservation. Let me tell you what these people are learning. They're going to die soon. They can't afford to wait any longer. It don't make no sense. If I was doing it, boy, you better be thankful I'm not doing it. If I was running it, I would have stuck with the long game. It was working. It was working for them. Now all of a sudden, it's like they've said, we've got to move at breakneck speed. Why is that? Because these are people that believe there's no afterlife. They believe there's no God. They believe they die and turn into dust, and that's the end of everything. And now they're terrified that their life will die without them ever being able to reap the benefits of what they have produced. So they're hastening. Can I tell you something? They're right. They're right. Now, they're not right that there's no afterlife. They're not right that they'll go to dust. But they are right that the sandcastles of empires that they've built will soon be swept away in the wave of eternity. All these things they've clung to, all these things they've built, all these things they worship will soon, like that calf in Samaria, be broken into pieces. Here's the reality. No matter what the devil lets them have, he can't let them keep it. He doesn't run eternity. God does. And you in your life better recognize that you better make your life matter for eternal things. If you, if you live your life only for the now, only for the present, if you worship idols of your own self-gratification, then you are bankrupting your eternity. You're creating for yourself a situation of being a pauper. You say, oh, preacher, you're saying I'll lose my salvation. No, you can't lose your salvation. You didn't earn it. But I am saying this. There's rewards to be had. There's rewards to be lost. And if we live our life only for self, then we are guaranteed to not have any rewards for a life lived for Christ. Preacher, what can I do? Tear down your idols. Tear down your idols. And put God back on the throne of your heart. And you'll find peace and you'll find profit in your life. I'm talking about spiritual pride. I ain't talking about, I ain't no Creflo dollar. I'm too poor to be a prosperity preacher. Somebody say amen. Nobody come to my tent meetings. I ain't got a nice enough suit. <laughs> I'm talking about spiritual profit in your life. Contentment, peace, joy, a life that is worth something. Tear down those idols and put the real God back on the throne of your life. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And you don't have to wait for the first note. If God spoke to your heart, I want you to come even now. You can come and kneel before Him. Heart of self-examination. I, listen, I'm not trying to pad for an altar call, but I'm just telling you the truth. Everybody would say just what Israel said. What idols? What idols? Are you so scared to look at whether there's idols in your life because you know they're there? Is that what terrifies you about it? It may not be a bunch of things, but you've got a couple of golden calves in your heart, things that you've allowed to take the place of God. The reason you're terrified to even ask God, are they there, is because you know they are in the first place. If they are, why don't you find a place down here and by the grace of God, tear down that idol and let God have His rightful place in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.